1969, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught fire. Now, this wasn't the first time that this had actually happened. Uh, It happened 13 times since 1868. This photo is one you may be familiar with. It wasn't from 1969. This is from 1952 when it happened. Um, What took place was they were putting industrial waste inside the river because industry was there, which meant jobs, which meant prosperity. And so nobody really cared that much for the river until about 1969 where they figured out, hey, this isn't good. Right? This is not healthy for people. This is not healthy for the environment. This is not a good thing at all. And so really the Clean Air Act of 1972 came from the last fire in 1969 on this river. We finally got smart and said industrial waste, toxicity, is not healthy. Today we continue our series called TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. Throughout the series, we've been talking about how we look forward to Friday, and we're excited about Friday, but we forget kind of about the rest of the week. And, and so we wake up on Friday morning excited because the week is in, and yet could we wake up on Sa- Monday morning and be like, hey, today is going to be an amazing day. This is going to be the beginning to an incredible, incredible week. And so over the past few weeks, we've been looking at work. The first week, we talked about how we have to change our attitude, that our attitude plays so much into how we feel about work. And and we said, if we could change our attitude, God could use that to bless the people that we work with. The second week, as we went through the series, we talked about balance. We talked about trying to figure out balance between work and home life, because 60% of our waking hours are spent working. What would happen if we could change that? What would happen if we would focus on that other 40% of the time that we spend Last week, we talked about small things. We said small things make a big difference. It's the small things in life that can make big differences. And so so we can do small things in the work world that can make a big, huge difference in the lives of others. And this week, we're going to talk about toxicity. We're going to talk about difficult people at work. I'm pretty sure that nobody in here has anybody that's difficult to work with, right? No, we have difficult people at work. They're all over the place. They're hard to work in, work with. And my guess is this is the reason so many of us, 70% of us in America, are so frustrated with our jobs. It's not because of the work. It's not because of the workload. It's because of the people. And so over the next few moments, I, I want to talk about the pollution that difficult people bring into the work environment. Because they're all around us. Now, this message this morning is focused on work, but let's just be honest. There's relationships that you and I have that are in tuned with difficult people, right? People in your family, people in your neighborhoods, uh, the person that you're married to, maybe even the person you're sitting beside right now could be a difficult person. So what we're going to talk about this morning, if you're here this morning, you're like, hey, I want some theological meat. I want to get deep. Tell me all the Greek words in Hebrew. Not happening, okay? This is ultra, ultra specific and very practical in our everyday life. Again, focused on work, but I'm pretty sure we can use this in our regular day-to-day life too. Well, let's start by thinking about some of the difficult people that we work with. Maybe you know these people. The talker, the micromanager, the overcommitted, the gossip, the fast tracker, the slacker, the suck-up, the overshare, the hothead, the snitch. We could go on and on and on here, right? All of these people are probably in your office right now. Well, not right now. Some of them may be. The overachiever is. But tomorrow morning, they'll be there waiting on you, ready. 
But this morning I want to talk about two specific groups of people because I'm pretty sure that these are the individuals that can really make our work world the hardest for us and frustrate us the most. So we're going to identify who these people are, and then we're going to give us some, some really some practical next steps that, that we can use that can help us on our everyday life. Again, in the work world, and I also believe with the relationships that we have. Here's the first one. The critic. Three things we can count on life, death, taxes, and critical people, right? Anybody have critical people where you work? Nobody? Well, good. This is good. You guys take this and send it out to the people you know and let them uh, know how they can change this. And critical people are everywhere. They're in your company. They're, they're on your team. Again, they may be, they may be in, in your home. They may be in your schools. These are people who criticize everything. That nothing is ever correct. Nothing is ever right. They're continuously critical. Here's the interesting thing about criticism, though. Criticism is something that we learn to do. It's something that we learned from the growing up years in our life. By the time you and I are 18 years old, we've heard the word no over 148,000 times. That's about 22, 23 times every single day. And a couple of your parents in here are like, oh, I need to say no uh, to my, or I got to stop saying no to my kids. No, you, you have to discipline your kids. But we've kind of trained our kids, we've trained ourselves to think and to be critics. This is something that's known as unintentional negative programming. We've been taught to think critically. And so we think critically, and how many times do we actually praise other people? Did you know that on any given day, 77% of your thoughts and my thoughts are negative thoughts? 77%. A great example of this is our staff here at The Journey on Tuesdays, we have our staff meeting. We get together, and one of the first questions we asked was, hey, how do Sundays go? And it's so interesting because we changed this a while back, but before that, how do Sundays go? Man, tell me everything that was terrible that happened on Sunday morning. And so I was like, hey, this volunteer didn't show up. That song didn't go the way we wanted to. You know, I told this joke, and nobody in second service laughed at it at all, and it was really funny. I don't get it. I mean, all of these things, we just start throwing all of this negative stuff out. But it makes sense. Because 77% of what you and I think about is negative. We actually changed that. There's a coaching book that we use to coach our staff and to coach our leaders. And the first question you ask is, how are you doing? The second question is, what are you celebrating? And when you throw that out, people totally change. Like, whoa, 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 I got to think negatively. I don't want the positive stuff. And it's like, think positive. And then when you get to the, what are the challenges, it's totally different. Then all of a sudden things have changed because we're not thinking as critically as we were before. But for many of us, And the people that we know that may be critical, a lot of that comes from our upbringing. And so this critical feeling, this critical emotion, these critical actions we take are kind of etched into our DNA. But this isn't something that's brand new. In fact, if we look at the Old Testament, we see this taking place in Exodus chapter 17. Starting with verse 1, Moses has this moment with the Israelites, and, and here's what happens. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, 
what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses, through God, leads the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt to freedom. After centuries of being slaves. And they get there, and there's this one day, they don't have any water, and all of a sudden, everybody's a critic. Like, Moses, what are you doing to us? You're going to kill us here. We need water. Moses is like, uh, hello? <laughs> Water's not that big a deal anymore, okay? We're going to get it because God's going to provide for you. Before, you literally were living in this living hell. We've got you out of that. You know, why are you angry, bro? I don't understand this. Moses has critics all around him. And in fact, if we look at Moses and his relationship with the Israelites, there's this tension that's always there. They continue to be critical of him. But it's not just Moses' story. We find it with Noah. We find it with David. We find it with Paul. We find it with Jesus. And more than likely, we find that critics are in our lives too. So who are these critics? Outwardly, they use criticism to validate themselves. To, to say to you that I'm more important than you are. And so in these conversations that we may have with them, their idea is I want to put you in your place. I want to prove to you that I am always right and you are always wrong. And so there's this outward thing, that's, this outward interaction that we have with the critic. But we need to realize that inside, most of the time, these critics, they're hurting. That there's something deep down inside of them that has brought them to this moment, to this place where maybe every single day that you go into the work world and you go into your office, you're being criticized from this person. There's something deep inside of them that is, is broken. They're miserable in who they are. And so I think if we can realize that, then that helps us deal with critics. But here's the hard part. Even if you know that they're hurt and they're outwardly expressing this hurt to you through criticism, it still hurts you, doesn't it? It's still painful to take what they have to say. And so we respond in one of two ways. We either fight or flight. We fight or flight. We fight verbally. You know, they send something out to us and we spar back with them. Or for others of us, we, we gossip about them. We'll listen to what they have to say and then we'll go say something about them negative to someone else. Or our favorite line is to be passive-aggressive. Um, thankfully, we have social media, which helps us to be even more passive-aggressive towards people. I don't know how many di- days I'll look at social media, Facebook or Twitter, and it's just like, oh, passive-aggressive, passive-aggressive, passive-aggressive. It's just all over the place, and it's just criticism. It's responding to criticism. And so we, we fight verbally. Sometimes we fight physically. Sometimes they irritate us so much, we throw punches. And we kick. We key their car. We run over their favorite water or flower bed at their home. I mean, we do all these things physically because we want to get back at them. So some of us fight the critic, verbally or physically. Others of us, we flight. We run. We want to get as far away as we can. We don't want to deal with the criticism. We don't want to deal with the conflict. Here's the deal. That's exactly what a critic wants us to do. Someone who criticizes us and is a critical person, that's what they want us to do. They want us to fight them or they want us to flight from them. They want us to go after them or they want us to run from them. In those moments, the critic has won. Are there better steps we can take? This morning, I want to share with you three steps that I think are the responses that we should have when it comes to critical people. Here's the first one. Listen to the criticism. That one's hard, right? It's hard to hear somebody who's critical of who you are, but, but could it be that something that they're saying, that there's some truth in that? 
Constructive criticism is, is, criticism is what we would, would call that. What are they really trying to tell me? What are they trying to say to me? Another question we can ask ourselves is what they're saying to me, is it to hurt me or is it actually to help me? See, sometimes we need to listen to that criticism and we need to be able to ask some clarifying questions. Help me understand. What's going on here? What, what are you trying to get at? Instead of trying to fight them or gouge their eyes out or run from them, listen to what they have to say. There may be something there. In Proverbs fifteen thirty one. The writer writes, if you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. It could be the first thing we need to do is listen to the criticism. Second thing we need to do, the next step is we need to answer the criticism. Again, if we listen, we tend to fight, we tend to run, but maybe we need to answer. It could be that there's information that is missing within what they understand to be true. It could be that they don't know the whole story. And so for you and I, it's the opportunity, it's the possibility for us to say, hey, oh, stop a second. Let me understand where you're coming from. And by the way, let me share with you some information you may not know. Again, listening to the critic and answering the critic can be so powerful. In Proverbs 12, 25, it says, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. You may hear that and you're like, what does that have to do with criticism? When you're criticized... How high does your anxiety go? When people criticize you on a consistent basis, we tend to hold on to this burden, this anxiety. We can't sleep at night. We can't function during the day. We're afraid to be around that individual. And so we kind of carry this anxiety with us. And then here in Proverbs 12, Solomon says, but a kind word cheers it up. Could it be that the words that we express back are as important as the words that we hear? That, that as we hear this criticism, as we answer, we're like, hey, thank you for sharing. Now, again, help me to understand. Or let me share with you why I leave my dirty socks on the floor every single day. <laughs> kind word, right? It would go, some of you, all I heard were ladies that were laughing on that one, so I know <laughs> what the deal is there. Anyway, listen to the criticism, answer the critic, but then sometimes those things don't work. The third step is to, to dismiss the criticism. Dismiss the criticism. Uh, I think one of the things that makes a good athlete into a great athlete is their mental toughness. Uh, I played college in, uh, or played college. I played baseball in college, and uh, we had a couple guys that went and, and played in the minor leagues. We had a couple guys that went and played major league ball, and uh, and those guys that went and played in the major leagues were not what you would say the, the most talented guys on our team. But, man, they just had this mental toughness that was just incredible. I mean, they, they, could, they can compartmentalize every single aspect of, of their lives. It was amazing. And so when they went to the pros, I mean, they could just, they had this toughness there. Because if you're, if you're an athlete, think about all the criticism you get, even from your own fans, right? I mean, constantly being bombarded by criticism over and over and over again. There's a mental toughness there. And they're able to dismiss criticism doesn't mean they don't hear it but they're able to move beyond it dismissing criticism i think is so powerful when it comes to critical people look jesus was routinely criticized by religious elite and in fact in matthew chapter 15 we we find this this moment where jesus listens to the critics He, he hears what they have to say he addresses them he answers them but at some point he finally says i'm done matthew 15 Starting with verse 13, 
Jesus says, every tree that wasn't planted by my Father in heaven will be pulled up by its roots. Forget them. They're blind men leading blind men. When a blind man leads a blind man, they both end up in the ditch. Jesus is like, hey, I'm done. I've listened to this criticism over and over and over again. I've responded to the criticism, and they still won't listen. So I'm done. They can take care of themselves. You know what? They don't know what they're talking about. It's the blind leading the blind, and they're just hurting themselves. They're leading themselves to destruction. At some point, you and I have to get to the place of this criticism keeps coming and coming and coming. We just have to dismiss it. We have to move beyond it. Again, I know that's hard to do, but we have to do that. We have to say, hey, I'm done. We're not having this conversation anymore. You can take it up with somebody else. You can take it up with my boss, the team lead, whatever it may be, but I'm done with this. I know that's hard, but I think it's a step that you and I need to take because we tend to fight, we tend to run, but I think if we could listen to the criticism and answer it, and then if we need to, to dismiss it, we can move on from the critical people in our lives. The critic, I think, is somebody that we find within our work world. The second one I think that we find on a consistent basis within the work world is the manipulator. Um, I don't know what it is about work. Work seems to be the place that uh, we kind of learn this skill of manipulation. Um, a manipulator who is someone who gets what they want from us, right? It's someone who pushes us to the limits that even if it's not part of our job description, maybe it's not even part of our team, but they push us in such a way to get us to do what they want us to do. And we give in to it. It's almost like these individuals have a gift, right? It's this gift they have to manipulate other people. And again, in the work world, we find that. And of course, out in relationships we have, in, in the rest of the world, we, we have that that too. And sometimes we make ethical decisions that aren't right because of the manipulator. The manipulator uses two tools. They use threats and guilt. Uh, threats are scare tactics. If you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. And many times a manipulator is, of course, a position or two higher than us, so they use that to threaten us with our jobs or our paycheck or whatever the case may be. So threats are one thing that they use. Another threat or another thing that they use is guilt hey, if you don't do this, then I'll get someone else to do it. Or, hey, I know you've got your kid's graduation that's coming up this weekend. This project's due on Saturday or Sunday morning. I know the graduation is Saturday. It really, really needs to be done. But you can do whatever you want. I'm going to let you make that decision. And so this guilt is there too. The manipulator knows how to use those tools of threats and guilt But it's important for us to understand that a manipulator is fueled by fear themselves. Their fear is they're going to lose control. Their fear is they're going to lose the power that they have. And so if you look at their their lives outside of work, you're probably going to find that they're, they're out of control. That they have no control over their home environment, over their personal environment. And so when they go to work, this is the moment that they control other people. They can control an environment. And so they use the fear that they have to power them to the place that they're at, to such a way they use threats and guilt against you and I. But there's something deep down, again, like the critic, that sometimes we don't see. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we find this moment where Jesus is having this interaction with Peter. And it says this, it says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders the leading priests, 
and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter here is trying to manipulate Jesus of all people. He's trying to manipulate and reprimand Jesus. Now, if you know much about Peter, this was kind of his MO. This is a struggle that, that he had. And what was Jesus' response in that moment? He's like, Peter, you better move. I, I got some power. I can do some things to you. Get out of my face right now. And in fact, he calls him Satan. I mean, this is, this is a pretty intense moment between Jesus and Peter. But Jesus saw the manipulation. He knew exactly what Peter was trying to do. And so in that moment, he responded to it. And he said, hey, I'm going to move on from this, Peter. I'm going to move ahead. It's easy for Jesus, right? I mean, he's divine, so he could do this, but he's also human. Remember that. So, uh, there may have been a little bit of a, a feeling there, but, but what about you and I? We're all human. And so how do we deal with these moments when we have manipulators in our life? Well, I think, that, again, there's three steps here. The first one is this. We've got to recognize we're being manipulated. Recognize we're being manipulated. I know some of us in this room are like, hey, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Not for some people, because we grew up in environments where we were manipulated. Maybe it was your mom, maybe it was your dad. You were always a doormat. Uh, they always made you do things maybe you didn't want to do. They made you do things that were ethically wrong, but, but they manipulated you. And so when you get to the work world, and if you've been manipulated as a kid, you just think that that's pretty normal. And so you, you kind of accept that, and so maybe you're not, not seeing that take place. The first thing we need to do is recognize that we're being manipulated. I want you to notice what Peter does here. Do you notice he takes Jesus alone? Right, he gets Jesus alone to have this conversation. That's what manipulators do. They get you alone. Um, think about lions and tigers and, uh, and the plains of Africa. How do they eat? Well, they look for the herd. They find the weakest. And then they're trying to separate the weakest deer, the weakest animal, away from the rest of the herd. And once they do that, they can attack and eat. A manipulator does that. A manipulator is going to find the weakest link. They're going to go to that person. They're going to pull you aside. And they're going to say, hey, here's some things I'd like for you to do for me. Again, they use threats and guilt to get us to do that. And so they try to get you alone. And if that happens, here's how else you can tell whether you're being manipulated or not. A few questions you can ask. Three questions. Is this a person you can't say no to? Do you always feel obligated every time they ask you to do something? Your answer is always yes. It's a good chance you're being manipulated. Another question is, do you feel guilty around this person every time you see them? And not just in an interaction, but if you see them in a room and you see them, you're kind of like, oh gosh, there's that individual. Do they make you feel guilty? Like you're kind of stuck in that, that work relationship. It could mean that you're being manipulated. Or worse yet, do we compromise our values? Do we change our ethics because of that individual? Because they've asked us to do that. Because, again, we are being manipulated. The first thing that we have to do when it comes to manipulators is recognize that we are being manipulated. The second step is we've got to speak up. We've got to speak up. Um, over the past year, this Me Too movement with women has just blown up in a good way. Sad, but a good way. The women have finally begun to speak up about being specifically around men who have been controlling and abusive, and they've held on to this pain for so long, and finally they're starting to say, hey, it happened to me. 
that took place in my life. And it's just been amazing to watch and hear these stories of these brave women who are standing up and with a resounding noise saying, me too. But, but as I think about that, that movement, the question is, why is it taking so long? Why has this been so hard for women to do? It's all because of manipulation. It's all because there's been a manipulator in their life that has used threats and guilt to abuse and control them. Again, in a room like this, the size, a church our size, I know it's happened to probably quite a few of you ladies here, which I'm sorry that that's taken place. But a manipulator has been the one who has made this take place in your life. And here's the, the strange thing about manipulators. Um, you may not be in that relationship with that individual anymore. It, it, this could have been decades ago. But you know what? That power and strength of a manipulator stays with you for so long until you finally get to the place of speaking up and seeking out the help that you need. It doesn't go away. That's the power that this individual has. Look, those manipulators are at work too. It's the exact same thing. They use that control, that power to keep us from speaking up. And I'm not equating what took place or what's taking place with the Me Too movement and, and with what we're talking about within the work world. I'm not equating that at all. I'm just saying at some point in time, once we recognize manipulation is happening, we got to be willing to speak up. It may mean speaking up to your boss. It may mean going over your boss's head and speaking up to somebody else. It may mean speaking up to the person who holds your paycheck. It may mean speaking up to the person who's your team leader. But you don't want to be in this relationship where you are being manipulated on a consistent basis through threats and guilt. At some point in time, we have to learn to speak up. That's what Jesus does here. In verse 23, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now, speaking up may be hard, but we can carry that anxiety that we feel and that pain and that guilt and that fear, or we can speak up and let it go. Recognize the manipulator, speak up. And then the last thing I would say, the last step, is redefine the relationship. Redefine the relationship. One of my uh, favorite things in the world is to go to weddings and to watch people dance. Never done that? Um, I'm not afraid to say this. Most of the weddings I go to, there's a bunch of white people there, and white people can't dance. I think Gary would attest to that. Um, we have these dance moves. We... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I do hold your paycheck in my hand, so hey, there you go. But uh, if you go to weddings, there are people that, that can dance, right? There's like two people at every wedding that can dance. And you're like, man, those people can dance. And there's people like me who are like, man, I think I can dance because, you know, when I'm at home, I can go in front of the mirror and I can turn on the radio and I can listen to it like, oh, yeah, I got some great dance moves. But, but I really don't, right? And maybe, yeah, you're those people too. Nobody, there's probably a couple of you here who can dance, but for the most part, we're not very good dancers. Uh, it's just kind of the, the way things are. Um, but it's always interesting to me because you, you think you can dance, and then you go to the, the party, you go to the wedding, and you got these moves you always go to. Like the lawnmower, right? <laughs> Sprinkler. The running man is still in vogue for a lot of people. Uh, my go-to is the overbite. I don't, what does biting the bottom lip do for you? I don't know, but that's kind of the way I do. I think it means we're in pain when we're doing this. 
Um, but, but you kind of go to these moves and you keep dancing them. But here's the deal. If you want to impress somebody, you're not going to keep doing those same moves, are you? At some point in time, you're going you're gonna to spend the, the money and the time and put the effort into it to learn a new dance move. One, that when you get on the dance floor, people are like, hey, they can actually dance now. That's amazing. So what you've done, you've changed the rhythm. You've changed your dance moves. You've changed your steps. When it comes to dealing with someone who is a manipulator, we have to redefine the relationship with them. We have to start taking different steps because here's what we do. When we're around a manipulator, we get into rhythm with them. We kind of follow the same beat. And so they kind of lead us on the dance floor, if you will. To redefine the relationship means we got to dance a new dance. That we got to find this new rhythm and this new beat that's separated from who they are. We have to redefine that relationship, which may mean some pretty big changes. It, it may mean that, again, you may have to go over their head or ask for a new job. Or you may even just have to say, I've got to leave. I've got to find a brand new job. I've got to change my rhythm. I've got to change my beat. I've got to redefine this relationship. There are manipulators within our work world, and some of you, you work with them every single day, and you know this. But we need to recognize what is there, that relationship that is, is broken and hurt. We need to speak up and then redefine that relationship with them. Critics, manipulators, again, the overachievers, the talkers and gossip, man, they are difficult people for you and I to work with. And again, sometimes it's not even just in the work world, it's the relationships we have on a day-to-day basis. But here's the deal. Difficult people, they bring toxicity to who we are. They bring it to the work environment. They pollute it. But there are steps that you and I can take that I think are healthy steps that can help us truly be who we should be at work so that every Monday when you wake up, you're not part of the 70% that says, hey, I'm frustrated with my job because of the people. That every 4.4 years, you're not changing your job because, you know, I like my job, but I can't stand the difficult people that I work with. And that we're not changing our jobs 10 times by the time we're 40 because of the people around us just irritate us because they're critics and they're manipulators. And you know what? We've never dealt with it. The reality is difficult people are always going to be with us. They're not going anywhere. But you and I can handle them in such a way, and I think a God-centered way, a Christ-centered way, that can allow you and I to be who God has created us to be so that we can bless the people that we work with. Two things I would ask you to do to think about is first, when you go to work tomorrow morning, wherever that is, in an office, telecommuting, travel, uh, maybe you're at home with, with your kids, Um, as you do that tomorrow morning, who are the critics and manipulators in your life? Who who are the people you need to change the rhythm of this relationship that you have with them? And then the second question, which I think is even more powerful than that, is asking ourselves, am I the critic? Am I the manipulator? Because if that's the case, then we've got a lot to work on. I know you have difficult people in the work world. I pray that you and I can work with them and redefine those relationships. So again, that we can do what God has created us to do. Uh, when we go back to what we've talked about, that verse in Colossians 3.23, whatever we do, do it with all our heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. That is our focus. That is who we are. That is what our job is about. 
making sure that we are so focused on Christ that we're able to deal with the other things that happen in the work world. And honestly, if we do that, I believe God will use us to bless so many lives. It starts with you and I, and we can make those decisions beginning right now, today. This morning, as we take communion as a church community, uh, maybe this is the moment you're thinking about those difficult people. As we've been talking, you, you, you know the critic. You, you know the manipulator. You, you know the gossip. You know the people that bring tension and hurt and pain to your life in that work setting. Maybe even the relationships you have outside of work. Maybe this is the moment that you give it up to God. and You're like, hey, God, I can't do this. I, I need you. And so this morning, as you take the, the bread and the juice, May that be your reminder. Maybe today you just need prayer. Maybe today you're like, I just need to skip communion. I just need prayer because I'm the critic. I'm the manipulator. Our prayer team's going to be back over here in this corner. They would love to pray with you today. But let God begin to work in us. So again, so we can be who God has created us to be in our work environment.